Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big list that's creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. So Will, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Matt. It's been a very productive week. I think I've had something published just about every day this week. And let me ask you, a lot of that is, uh, has been Trek with, uh, with Marky Turtles at Comics XF. Have you started season two of Picard? Have you started Strange New Worlds? Where are you on some of these uh, these uh, series here? I have not because I just got my Paramount Plus login a couple days ago. So Matt, I could have given you mine. What the what the fuck are you doing? I know, but I, you know, one of the rewards of a new relationship in my life is a Paramount Plus login. So uh, I, I've got oh like- oh 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 oh. So you will take hers, but you won't take mine. Well, I didn't know. Okay. And I got a profile on the whole nine yards. So ah, get the fuck out of here. But I will be, Amber and I will be digging into something this weekend, whether it's making our way through di- the parts of disco we haven't seen yet, or jumping right into season two of Picard, or probably Strange New Worlds, because there you can just, you know, we've only got one or two episodes. So. Bam. Right uh, yeah. Se- second episode drops tomorrow. Okay. Well, seven weeks from now, when you all are listening to this, like it's going to be almost finished. But as we were recording, the second episode will drop. The first episode, fucking amazing. One of the best pieces of Trek media I have seen in a long, long time. Whoa. Do yourself a favor and watch that and maybe get like, I don't know, two or three episodes of Picard. We'll be digging in ASAP. Uh, <laughs> Picard still gaining acceptance. Well, Second season, a great deal better than the first, but it's still not great. Strange New Worlds, though, A plus. A plus plus. We know where to start. Batman. Yes, we have some good news here this week. Two pieces, actually. And oh. neither of those have to do with Two Face, even though there's two. Oh. First, we have a new Patreon backer. Hey! Let's say hello and thanks to new Jason Todd to your backer, John Wickham. Hey, John. Thank you, John. You are now our 10th backer, and that puts us halfway to our goal of being able to do the bonus Patreon episode where we rank all the, the Star Trek movies. So we're circling right back to Star Trek there. There we go. And our second bit of news this week is we have a guest. Because really? We, yes, indeed, we do. The week this episode drops, the new Poison Ivy miniseries from G. Willow Wilson and Marcio Takara uh, should be hitting, barring whatever vagaries happen due to supply chain issues. So I decided to bring on one of the biggest Ivy fans I know, the Carrie Kelly to my grumpy old Bruce Wayne, Veronica Beatrice. Yeah. Welcome to Bat Chat V. Thank you for having me. And I concur, you really need to catch up on your track. I mean, what are you doing, Matthew? I know, I know. <laughs> I do two podcasts a week. I have. It's okay, though. I, I am at capacity for my Paramount Plus. So I'm glad that you found another in. <laughs> I have so many streaming services. I'm so behind on everything. Strange New Worlds is great though. I'm I'm really I went my um I'm in a Star Trek tabletop group, and so it, it's led by my mythology professor from undergrad who started doing tabletop things with us. We've done you know five E D and D. We've done 
the Star Wars saga. We've done two different post-apocalyptic campaigns and now we're doing Star Trek. And so we had a little viewing party for the premiere and it was, it was lots of fun. Yeah, okay. That's the first one we'll do. We'll maybe do that even tomorrow night. I think that's <laughs> tomorrow night. But, and of yeah. course, I think the very best reason to see Strange New Worlds is Anson Mount is Anson fucking, fucking hot. Mount, he's so, oh, I cannot believe like this. Captain McDreamy. Right. Oh, my God. And, you know, and then he gets to be really sad and angsty and, you know, you just want to cuddle him. He's great. I did not think I would just like fall head over heels for Anson Mount uh, season two of Disco, but they did it. They they managed to introduce him so perfectly that I was I was I was simping over a white man again. Oh, it's going to be a great fucking show. Yeah. I'm so excited. But, but okay, first, let's just start out with our normal, you know, first question for uh, new guests. Uh, Veronica, what are your early memories of Batman? And in this case, Poison Ivy as well. Oh, gosh. Well, my parents were not big into comic books. I had to really convince them to that Batman was bat and not bad. And, you know, they understood Superman, everyone gets Superman. And then, you know, like shadowy noir, I had to kind of pitch that to them. Uh, It wasn't until Nolan, you know, started doing his thing that I was like, look, see art. But I definitely watched Batman animated. And uh, that was my first encounter with Poison Ivy as for many of us. And oh boy, was that a route for me. (laughs) I guess since many of you hearing this might not have heard Veronica's appearance on WMQ&A a few years ago. Veronica and I have known each other for 14 years. And Veronica lived not too far from where my then fiance, now wife Amber and I were living. And it was the townwide yard sale. And I had a bunch of comics out. And this teenage girl comes up and just starts talking to me about comics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hence the Carrie Kelly to my grumpy old Bruce Wayne. Uh, yeah, you had comics, you had a bunch of like Frank Herbert and and also some wedding magazines. <laughs> yep. So yeah, we became besties like right away, obviously. And now 14 years later, you've been on both of my podcasts and right? are always welcome back. So now that we've gone through all the preamble, we should probably start the episode. Hit uh, that record button. Yeah. So the first story of the night is Beware of Poison Ivy. This is from Batman Volume 1, number 181. The writer is Robert Conniger. Pencils by Sheldon Maldoff. Inks by Joe Giella. As is often the case with these Silver Age stories, no colorist is credited. Letters by Gaspar Saladino. And edited by Julia Schwartz. Cover date is June of 1966. In her first appearance, Poison Ivy declares herself the queen of crime and sets herself out to overthrow the three current most wanted female outlaws while Batman, I don't know what, this summary is just a mess because this story is just <laughs> kind of a complete mess. It's uh, incredible. <laughs> yeah. First things first, uh, normal problematic creator watch when it comes to Julia Schwartz, noted sexual harasser and not cool guy. Conniger is not necessarily problematic in that way, except he's problematic in the way that this is a guy who wrote wonder woman for a real long time and oh boy never really got what was going on there it 
feels like and that is very evident in how he's writing and co-creating ivy here yeah it's uh it's really interesting to see what the idea for her was because it's almost like it's a villainess pageant that's going on you know like there's all of the other ones kind of have their gimmick and she's like oh rats these phonies i need everyone to know that i'm the queen of crime and it's like it's like she's trying to be the kim k of gotham through crime but like she doesn't have a like a a specific you know like she has her her gadgets and her gimmicks and i it feels really interesting to me that there's all of this interplay with like pharmaceuticals, you know, like the, the makeup stuff that's going on. And, and I, I feel like that also kind of ties back into this idea of, you know, things being bright, poisonous in nature, you know, like alluring, but dangerous. There's a lot of really cool, interesting, uh, sexist stuff going on. Um, I had to really dig into some, uh, feminist critical theory, just, just trying to think about, like what were the what were the anxieties at play that uh, created this issue she's like this pin-up goddess of destruction when she shows up on the scene she has like this obsession with with men like she she hones in on batman and and like she meets bruce wayne earlier on and obviously doesn't know they're the same guy and so she just kind of is like oh batman like he's you know a real thorn in my side, you know, like, but man, is he a hunk, but I can't decide what am I going to do? Like, am I going to, am I going to, am I going to go for Batman or am I going to go for Bruce Wayne and Ivy? No one asked you, like, <laughs> I don't think he's aware, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. What did you guys think about that? I mean, this, a lot of that for me had that very sixties sort of, I mean, frankly, no, even before that 40s, 50s, and 60s, Clark Kent, Lois Lane, Superman, Love Triangle vibe. Only that was not as common with Batman at this point. Like Selena was rarely into Bruce. That was a much more into the late 70s, early 80s kind of thing where there was more of that. And then there was always very ambiguous for a long time whether Selena knew Bruce's identity or not. Batman rarely had that sort of love triangle. So it seemed like some of this at least was, well, that worked so well with Superman, but let's do it with Batman, but let's make it a villain because that would be something that we're not doing with Superman. And it didn't really work. Yeah, I don't think Poison Ivy generally works at all when we try to pretend she's into men or when we like lead with that, at least. I think that the one thing that, is kind of, I guess, a, a redeeming thing about it. And maybe that's just the time it's coming out in and the other things. It feels very like, I can almost give it a pass if you just look at the entirety of it as burlesque, which I think a lot of old like classic Batman is like, everyone's so colorful and out there. The entire rogues gallery is just one big burlesque show. And when you kind of just, and I have seen, uh, DC and Marvel burlesque uh, shows around Comic-Con like a million years ago but you know the pinup quality of it her little like gadgets of like lipstick with chloroform and you know all of these other fun things I feel like would make a fun show I think part of what makes Poison Ivy so fun as a character 
is the spectacle of her. You know, she has all these vines. So you, you got your bondage and, <laughs> and, but it's like more dynamic, the bright colors and the poison of it. I think a lot of it is suggestive also because you guys remember that one song that came out in like in the fifties by the, the coasters, Poison Ivy, you know, it, it's talking about like ostensibly a dangerous woman, but it's also kind of talking about STDs. So her, she has kind of this suggestive name. She's being portrayed here as this wannabe influencer, like wannabe celebrity who also is mad crazy. There are all of these other things where it's like, I think her obsession with like glamour or looking pretty is also indicative of her being corrupt and evil, which is, we see plenty of that attitude right now anyway, with any female or femme presenting person who has a brand at all. And, you know, who's trying to like put their stuff out there. If if they're not put together at all, they don't get the attention that they need to succeed. And then if they're too put together, if they're too constructed and you're too aware of the artifice that goes into it, then they get shit on for that as well. And so I think that it's uh, at later versions of Poison Ivy play with that double standard, but there's a lot of this kind of like idea that her fixation on makeup and pharmaceutical things in, in general kind of make her false. And then you have obviously later on, it becomes the eco-warrior, eco-terrorist uh, angle. So it's interesting to see that that's not where they were taking her initially. That wasn't even really her slant. She doesn't seem to care about the earth at all in this issue. Uh, she's really just about hitting it big and getting her brand out there and, and showing people that she has all these cool gadgets and can make any man fall in love with her. I think it's a, you're seeing the influence of noir in that, but like in a noir and almost some atomic, like post-nuclear angst about artificiality in women and the products that they use to make themselves look beautiful and young and ensnare men, I guess. So you just hit this, but this was one of the things that struck me in reading this. There is no angle, like you said, of the the environmentalism. You know, she shows up in the costume that we see more or less to the modern day. Like it's it's the poison ivy you would visually recognize, but none of the text, none of the characterization is what we would expect today. So I thought that was that was strange. Like, I don't know, as, as a creative team, you're designing this character, you're doing this outfit, and you don't think about, okay, Poison Ivy, is she going to have some kind of plant gimmick? Like, what's, what's the deal here? But as you said, it's very much like based in the makeup, and she's got some deal with the electricity and the, you know, the, the camera flashes and all that with her lipstick. It's like, it's a very strange read. Yeah, I think I wish I had had time to find this one excerpt, but one of my favorite uh, scholars, Jane Caputi, has this book, Goddesses and Monsters, Women, Myth, Power, and Popular Culture. It's a really fun book. It has uh, Marilyn Monroe on the cover with like Gorgon hair and kind of the pop art of Andy Warhol. And she talks about women being equated with nuclear destruction that kind of like uh, I, I forget I, th- I think it was one of the bombs dropped on Hiroshima that had either it was named after or it actually had an image of Rita Hayworth I want to say as Gilda uh, on it there's just like a really interesting interplay 
throughout pop culture history of femininity and especially like heightened femininity being equated to atomic destruction and uh, all of these other anxieties of that age and and kind of still you know like all of the excesses all of the the ways that marketing started to really recognize I think women as uh, a demographic to be selling more products to and maybe deciding like oh these products that we were selling before for just household stuff like what if we zhuzh them up a little bit and put them in a nice canister and then convince women that they need them to keep their husbands and you know I me anytime I put on like eye cream at night and anytime I, I get the, they're named all of these interesting things you get your essences and your ampoules and slathering that all over my face and and it, a part of it feels like this weird r- ritual to feed the the demon to whom I, I sold my soul for eternal youth you know <laughs> so I think that there's a lot of that fear happening there and that's what they're fixating on and then later on in like the 80s and 90s when we get that corporate greed and then we really start shitting on the environment is where that need for a different kind of poison ivy comes out. Ivy as environmentalist really comes out of the Neil Gaiman reworking of her origin in Secret Origins post-crisis and even then she's still the femme fatale Mm -hmm. in Suicide Squad, where she was featured at the time. It's not until Batman the Animated Series that that really changes her character she is probably second only to freeze as a character who batman the animated series really redefines as freeze had no legitimate decent origin short of random science criminal who got frozen before that and that gave him this pathos at least there was some fragments of what ivy would become before batman the animated series while freeze was just a blank slate but that yeah. I mean the animated series between that and her relationship with harley redefines the character nearly entirely yeah i think what it is for me and and i'm so glad you brought up gaiman because the, you know his origin story for her i think he does this perfect transitional thing and sets up ivy to become who she becomes later where you get to know her and, you know, investigate her a little bit through the eyes of this really sleazy private eye or corrupt cop, you know, very noir again. And he talks to her, he gets bits of her backstory. And, you know, by the end, you realize you can't trust a single thing that she has said to him because she really just like, oh, you believe that? I just say things. And, you know, and like the entire time, she's just trying to basically pull them in so that she can pull the rug out from under any man who dares to to try and like pin her down and it's very film fatal it's very barbara stanwyck very noir type of thing and i think it also hammers home the whole thing where she's most interesting i think it's easy to see why she gets paired and and placed in front of male characters a lot of the time because she those toxins you know it's always fun to play around with it's always fun to see like harvey dent or batman flat on their ass because they like got too close to a hot lady uh but like it's always going to be artifice in front of those characters And so she really gets to be a person when she's around her female friends. So Harley and in in some uh, iterations, Selena Kyle, when they're not frenemies, 
So like, I think that by necessity, there's just something about poison ivy and and the origins of poison ivy where you don't really get the genuine article uh, by design in front of male characters uh, and, and in front of heroes in general, because she's also like an outcast. And as soon as you start to make her motivation ecological, then you pave the way for other sympathetic and redemptive arcs, because especially now, like throughout the ages, we, we've kind of seen that softening and and more redemptive paths for her that only really become visible when she has friends to support her. As we haven't actually talked about Batman in this story. Uh, yeah, he's a complete schmuck. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, even by like Silver Age standards, Bruce is a complete schmuck in this story. It, it's not even like Ivy seems to be working any of her pheromone Ivy tricks on him. He's just drooling. And Robin is in full girls have cooties mode through mm-hmm. most of this. How many times does Robin say, basically, Batman, put your dick away. We have work <laughs> to do at least half a dozen times in a 12 page story every other page yeah and but you know what like clearly it works because you know in that last page he just snaps out of it like nothing happened so he when he puts his dick back in the box you know he's full operational capacity and that's i guess the whole problem with batman and his relationships you don't run into this issue with a post crisis more serious batman but Mm -hmm. a, a fun silver age batman would absolutely fall right into this trap. And it's fascinating to me. This is a story from 1966. So we're right at the time of, or right before, I believe, the series, the television series would have launched. Mm -hmm. Ivy screams to me like a character that was created that they would then transplant over into the TV show. Mm-hmm. that you would i mean she's physically modeled after betty page but you yeah. could i know i was looking up so like i was wanted to see if there had been any synergy there and it didn't seem like but it seems like ann margaret is the popular modern fan cast for mm-hmm. ivy and it's like i can completely see i can that. totally see that and like ann margaret with especially with the star power and kind of what her image was and represented like a hundred percent that would be very very on brand yeah that's that's so interesting she really is I guess that's another reason she pairs so well with Harley who was created for the animated series they're both kind of they're very colorful characters with lots of fun props essentially glad we had broader topics to discuss because this story is fairly thin when it comes to actual (laughs) story I do find it interesting that Conniger did not write a ton of Batman and you can kind of tell that because he doesn't get Batman. He addresses Bruce at one point as millionaire sportsman, like nowhere in the world as anybody else thought Bruce Wayne was out there, depending on how you want to view sportsmen, either racing cars or killing big game. That was never Bruce <laughs> Wayne's thing. Matt, it's, it's trivial pursuit rules, sports and leisure. <laughs> okay. Same category. True, true. Yeah, um, I don't think there's much else to discuss on this one. But it's such an interesting backdrop for what happens next. Yes. I've got nothing else, so that means it's time to put Batman number 181, Beware of Poison Ivy, on the big board. 
we currently have 111 stories on our big list. Story number one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 25 is Tower of Babel, JLA, number 43 to 46. Number 50 is The Untold Legend of the Batman. At 69 for the kids, it's Blades. <laughs> Matt's favorite story from Legends of the Dark Knight. Nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> number 75 is Deathcast, The Deciding Vote, The Silent Night of Batman, from Batman number 219. Number 100 is Batman, Gotham by Gaslight. And remaining down at the bottom is Batman White Knight. Long may I've got a quadrant for you to consider, Matthew. Okay. I'm looking at this. We have got, let's say, Death Cast the Deciding Vote at 75. Mm -hmm. And Case the Chemical Syndicate, Detective Comics 27 at 101. Yeah, that's a big spread, but I think we're in there somewhere. I agree. This is this story. I'm trying to figure out if it qualifies. I don't think it quite qualifies as problematic. It qualifies as a sign of its times, but it's not. Lord knows if it were in today, it would be problematic. And I don't know if that if that's a good enough reason to dub it not problematic. Yeah, I I think it's it's still problematic, but it's. It's one of those, it's almost like it, it not that serious, you know, like it's, it's not giving Ivy more power. If she was, if she had the ambitions of today, then it would be pr- very problematic. Cause you're basically saying that, you know, like a hot chick who likes makeup and wants attention is going to take over the world just to like, just for the clout. <laughs> right. So the, the harshest of the problematic stories do fall below that below where you're talking well so that's still fine we have stuff above that that is problematic but either well-intentioned or again is problematic in a way that is like okay like uh like uh somebody we're gonna get into later uh dark knight of true batman story at 79 yeah boy howdy uh this is interesting this is technically a a significant book because ivy is top 10 greatest Batman foes of all time. She's mm-hmm. big foe. So this gives it a little clout and pushes it up. But then again, at 101 is the first appearance of Batman. So just because you're important doesn't necessarily make you get a higher spot on this list because as I think we've said many times before, that story is shadow fanfic with Batman sort of shoved into the shadows role. It's not a Batman story yet. Uh, refresh my memory on your face is your fortune, Batman 15 at 93. That is the Catwoman story where she, ah. that one actually does a better job of doing some of the things that this story does. And that yes, Catwoman is sort of Bruce Wayne crazy, but she's not both Bruce Wayne and Batman crazy. And her plan is a lot less weirdly problematic because it's not just let me be the prettiest evilest girl it's like i want to make money and i'm going to do it by manipulating everybody and looking like i'm reformed when instead i've got this whole elaborate plan so i don't think this quite beats that so now we're officially looking from 93 to 101 yeah 
I think this is better than 96. This is better than Superman's Secret Kingdom from World's Finest 111. Because that... Oh, definitely. That, that was, was wretched. That was not good, but it was also... It somehow went out of its way to avoid being bizarrely offensive. But it still was a Silver Age story set in South America. So it still had its issues. Above I'm that- going to push then for, and sorry to cut you off. No. I'm going to push then for making this the new 96 right under the first appearance of Robin. Because that, uh, that candlelight oath, some pretty tight shit right there. Yeah. there are- And I don't think we have any kind of standout moment in this book. No, there are better Ivy stories. And I apologize. I said before we started, I apologize to both of you for going for stories that I thought had some significance and some attempts to show different facets of Ivy without actually looking at what might be good. Because there will be good Poison Ivy stories on this list someday. Stories that will wind up really high. Uh, Tonight is not that night. Tonight is not that night. Uh, we bring on guests and we we make them read the bad shit. That's what we do. I are you kidding? I fucking live for the bad shit. Like I live for. I think there's sometimes you just get so much more rich information about what's going on in the zeitgeist from reading the the pulpier lowbrow stuff. Like like if you really want to understand opinions and and anxieties and all this other stuff like you you got to you got to jump right into the pulp it's it's what makes it fun yeah uh speaking of uh our next story is Harley and Ivy this is Batman Harley and Ivy numbers 1 through 3 uh, the writer is Paul Dini pencils by Bruce Tim inks by Shane Gilness and Bruce Tim colors by Lee Lawfridge letters by Tom Orzakowski edited by Joan Hilty and Harvey Richards cover dates are June to August of 2004 in this animated series style story Harley and Ivy go on a madcap road trip involving zombie roots Hollywood and far too much TNA Uh, this as i said is paul dini and bruce tim who are two of the masterminds behind batman the animated series the comic is done in new batman adventures style interestingly as i said this was released in 04 however this series had to have been planned for years because sample panels from it appear in chip kids Batman Animated, the book of the history of Batman the Animated Series, which was released in 1998. So this sat on the shelf for at least six years. That's wild. Yeah, and those panels were from the final issue. So I don't know if maybe more of it was tinkered with and they'd only done sort of the Hollywood story and then they added material to it. But the panels from the early in that issue appear in that book. So it, it And I, I went back and I double checked. It was like, I could have sworn. And I looked at my copy of that book. And I was like, yeah, those are the exact panels. It feels very much like a collection of ideas that don't go together. So it wouldn't surprise me if part of this did sit around for years. And they're like, fuck, let's get this thing out the door. Let's slap something else on it and just be done with it. Yeah. A big Duke Nukem Forever vibes. This really feels like we've seen in some of the other Deanie and Tim stuff 
hey, we can get away with stuff in the comics that we can't get away with on the cartoons because of standards and practices. So let's go for it. And I think, Will, as you said earlier, after reading Dark Knight, everything by Paul Dini is sort of tainted. At least anything he's written that involves strongly involves female characters becomes somewhat tainted by understanding his relationships with women. Ooh. Yeah. Yep. Long story short, not good. Not, not oh. the healthiest of relationships. No. That's so tough because Baldini has done, uh, has cre- exemplified uh, a lot of the characterization for Zatanna, who's my other favorite. <laughs> So yeah, but I just, I guess I have a type and it's in that type is complicated and underserved female characters. Have you ever seen a picture of Paul Dini's wife? Oh yeah. I, I know big time. That, <laughs> that was, again, again, we're just seeing everybody's kinks in Batman. That's all it is. <laughs> yep, as, as Will likes to say, the writers barely disguise fetish. Uh, yeah. And in his case, it's not even barely disguised. It's right there on the page. Right. Like it's so convenient that Satana has, you know, this show. So she has to, she just has to wear fishnets and look like it is to be fair. One of the better excuses for costumes uh, and, and Zatanna does get to have some, some fun costumes like Ivy does with possibly a better excuse, but oh my God, it's just, it's just straight up. Yeah. Your, your little literary erotica. <laughs> Will, as I think Will pinned each of these three issues feels like it's an almost self-contained story. These are three ideas that are, tangentially joined together by this zombie root as a narrative it's not really a MacGuffin because it does directly affect the plot but it's barely a plot device just as an excuse to get Harley and Ivy to a high society ball get Harley and Ivy down to South America or Central America I don't think they make it pretty clear where Costa Verde is and then get Harley and Ivy out to Hollywood. It's almost a literal plot device. It is a literal yeah. plot device. Yeah. And it's kind of like the, you know, there's a lot of, uh, obviously with, with Harley Quinn, she's a, a lot of their relationship is, is Ivy telling her that she's better off without the Joker helping her get over him. But there's also that element of like a couple on the outs a little bit throughout these, because, you know, Harley loses the zombie route that they're after. And so like you get a lot of panels of Ivy just devising creative ways to get back at Harley and, you know, feed her to the plants and and whatnot before eventually they make up. So it's kind of like a a couple's fight. And they are clearly not ready to make this a queer relationship. Right. But but they they want to, they want to, to get right up to that line like they're they're just really good friends like mm-hmm. really good friends uh, but that's uh, it as, as x-men fans like to use from chris claremont's parlance gal pals yeah yeah just gals being pals uh squirming around in you know the muck at arkham being tackled by a fleet of all-female security guards because they're the only ones not impacted by poison ivies like poison saliva 
that's another argument for why poison ivy like i i can't really take any relationships that she has with men as seriously because uh, there's like a serious consent issues there and because we've decided that her pheromones only affect men or at least people who were assigned male at birth uh i guess that's how that would work then you know it really naturally does go in the direction of okay so the more authentic relationships that she would have would be with with female with women female characters and so i think we've we've still stayed pretty for the most part binary with that i think there's a lot of stuff that i think we could i hope to see in the future like expanding upon and maybe making it a little less essentialist but there's there are a lot of themes of that uh at play and then like so many shots in in these types of stories that really there there's I think a a shot somewhere in here of Harley kind of looking a little mopey and and sad about something that I think it's specifically about Poison Ivy saying that the thing her stuff only works on on men uh I don't know I, I if I interpret that as maybe Harley thinking that oh no I have a a a crush on my straight friend or if it hints at other uh fun uh kink play for her for her yeah I don't know I think I I don't know if I'm just mistaking this because I blows my mind that this came out in 04 I feel like I remember reading it with I mean I guess it wasn't so much earlier that Mad Love and Harley and Ivy Love on the Lamb came out I felt like I had this memory of reading it in a volume of other things that I'm sure were just other Paul Dini things. This was collected in a trade with Love on the Lamb, not with Mad okay. Love, but it's in the same trade as Love on the Lamb uh, and a couple sense. of other store, a couple of other shorts. So you're at least you're probably remembering that correctly. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And, and it does uh, connect to the other stories that I remember or the tone of the other stories that were in that collection specifically being things that really like you said will go right up to that line like really they queer bait us really really hard with with these gals except in the hbo max series where it is not baiting as it turns out no i mean you you start getting beyond baiting in the uh, the palmiotti and connor yeah one. yeah were they is that the one where they're together and also polly yeah yeah, yeah, where Harley has the boyfriend who's the son of one of the carny burlesque folk who live in the building with her. Oh, there you go. Mason is his name. And Ivy, where it's very clear that they're, and Ivy walks in and finds the two of them asleep in each other's arms. And Ivy kind of gives her a smile, like, good for you, yeah. girl, and then kind of walks out. But by the end of that run, Harley and Ivy are clearly yeah. a couple. It's good. And it's, it's also a the nice one. compersion there, yeah. too. And it's also the run where Harley finally gets to beat the living shit out of the Joker in Arkham, which yeah. was worth however many years it took for her to finally do that. Yeah. I'll get back to your point on bioessentialism, Veronica. That's at least one thing the next story has going for it, because I, I think if you're writing you know, this relationship in modern day, you can't you can't do this. It only works on men thing for the reasons yeah. you point out. And we just saw Chelsea Kane try to do that a couple of years ago with with man eaters. Like, hey, trans people exist, and yeah. you just can't you can't do that in the in the twenty twenties, which is 
good. So I think as we see more modern stories, they are going to just say, oh, it just works on everybody. She's powerful. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. And they, you know, there's, I think that there's so much in, in terms of the green in general that can explore all of the nuances of gender. Like it's so much more interesting to me to take all of that and all of these ideas and really play around with them uh, in a way that's less second wave feminist or less a reaction to that. Like a lot of the issues that I've had with Poison Ivy as she has, has been portrayed is even the slant of the earth is overpopulated, humans are the problem. Like it's one thing to be a misanthrope, but I feel like Poison Ivy's, she is much more compelling and makes a stronger case if she's, you know, just saying like, okay, well, I'm going to go after the billionaires and the people who collude with them, like the Bruce Waynes and the Harvey Dents of the world. And I'm going to remove them from the equation because they're all the ones hogging the resources and messing things up for everybody else and keeping people from you know, making up good choices. Like it's not the fault of like, like the dude who's littering on the corner or who's uh, selling, you know, these like dying bouquets of like carnations at the deli. Like they're not the problem. They're not the people creating the problems. And it feels like such a misdirect to do that, which is what we were doing in the in the 90s. That was kind of like this very straw feminist thing. And I think that's another issue with with Poison Ivy being pegged in and put into this femme fatale role where it's like she's a femme fatale. She's sexy, but we have to make her a straw feminist, too. We have to make her uh, ideals like completely out of touch with reality and misguided because otherwise like it, it gets a little uncomfortable for, for Bruce Wayne. <laughs> and also making her the wipeout humanity just makes her racial ghoul with powers, other different powers and pretty. Yeah. You don't hey, need us pretty. Well, race is, race is dignified. And it's not to say that men can't be pretty men absolutely can be pretty, but race has that, Except when he's played by Alexander Sitting, then he is pretty. Oh, so oh wait, on... wait, 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 wait. What? Alexander Sitting? Like Bashir? Yeah. In oh. Gotham, Alexander Sitting plays Rachel Ghoul. This is the goddamnedest queerest episode of Batchat yet. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Bashir, right? Like Bashir, mm-hmm. Batman, like that's just layer upon layer. I love it. Oh, yeah. I will tell you, I think that like the second wave straw feminist Poison Ivy is like, would be a turf uh, and like modern poison ivy and the poison ivy that we're seeing in newer issues, like, you know, poly poison ivy and HBO backs poison ivy. I understand gender and it a lot better. And it, it only makes sense for the green, you know, if she's palling around with Swamp Thing, you, you can't say that there's anything binary about Swamp Thing or Alec Holland anymore. And so there, there's so much biodiversity in nature among plants there's all all of these other things going on like it just doesn't make sense to have a really binaristic view uh, or any type of perspective for for a being who is so much plant now that she you know like x and y don't really mean anything to her i'd say harvey dent is also a turf yeah <laughs> you know makes sense he just flips a coin <laughs> everything's a binary mm-hmm 
what's frustrating, what's especially frustrating in this story when viewing this though, is that the one time you get a male character or male identifying or male born character who is not affected, it's a pair of ridiculous gay stereotypes. It's like, yeah. oh, really? Fuck, and, where was that? Did I miss that? In volume two, Slash and Burn, the two. Oh, he's, yeah, it was the, he's not into you or whatever. Right. I, the, that the totally earring, like went above my head. The, yeah. the earring code is gross. They are Fucking absolutely gross. gay stereotypes. Meanwhile, Ivy's powers do not affect the not even coded butch lesbian prison guards. Right. And they were definitely like butch lesbian coded. Like there was a very sexploitation, like prison pulp film porn going on there. Oh yeah. And that was one of those, there's way too much gratuitous TNA in this book. I mean, that sequence, oh good. They're in their underwear in prison. That's Welcome to Late Night Cinemax in Gotham, folks. Great. <laughs> Skinemax. Yes. Probably of the three, that, that second issue, I think is, well, we've discussed with other trilogies. The middle chapter is always the one, with the exception of The Empire Strikes Back and maybe The Godfather, where it's the, it's the low point. Because mm-hmm. that, that- John Wick 2. It was good. Okay, yeah. But that, that's more than a trilogy, though. That seems to be designed to go further. So that's a series. I'm, I'm, when you've got Fair. an actual one, two, three, the, the middle chapter tends to be the, the, the problem child. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if which one of the first or the third was better than the other, but I know the one in the middle was the one that was far and away the most problematic, except for, there's that one panel in the third issue which kind of loses me when Ivy's giving... Harley in order and Harley snaps off a Nazi salute. It's like, oh, you're really. Oh, God, that was uh-huh. bad. That yeah, was pretty bad. <laughs> really going there. And th- that wasn't okay in 04. We all know that wasn't okay in 04. Yeah. A Jewish character, too. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like, man, everybody forgets that Harley is, is Jewish and or they don't know what to do with it. It's interesting. I mean, Will and I did on the Patreon a bonus episode that talked about the animated Holiday Nights episode, which adapts a comic from a Batman Adventures holiday special. The comic specifically calls out Harley's Judaism and the TV show removes those lines. That's like, mm. there's no real reason to. It's a strange choice to just suddenly be like, because it was like two lines. One about Harley wanting a Christmas tree and Ivy initially going off of this whole thing about botanical genocide and then ending it with, and aren't you Jewish? <laughs> yeah, but they're so pretty. That's a vibe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's like, why did you remove that line? It's, it's nearly a word for word, except for that one line. Yeah, and that's 100% a conversation that would take place. There are some fun ideas here that just don't pan out. And I wish the three stories had felt more like a mini series and not like three random issues that they kind of like, okay, we have these ideas, let's tie them together. Also that last issue, clearly there's a big Fabio joke with the one guy. So that's clearly was written well before 2004 because Fabio wasn't even 
a blink in the mirror in 2004. Yeah, that was a very outdated joke that that people were like googling <laughs> at that point, I think. I, again, it feels like maybe in 1998, if this was originally, if that that story at least existed in 98 when that book was released, the Batman animated. So it has to have been probably from the original draft that they didn't try to modernize that for a better, more topical joke. Do you think Dini is working out some personal angst against Animaniacs? <laughs> oh my God, the an- thank you for bringing that up. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Because we know that he writes his feelings. Yes. Does he ever? The one joke that really did hit for me was Harley knocking out the faux Joker on the set and him going, Yoda, Dagobah system. It's like, okay, a Mark Hamill Joker joke. I'll take that. That, that joke, that's, that, that joke's funny. Yeah, I like, I like intertextuality in anything to do. It's completely requisite for anything Harley. Like that's what makes Birds of Prey so fun for me is like, it's like reference wrapped up in reference wrap, but like serving a narrative purpose. That's one of the really fun things you can do. She's kind of like DC's Deadpool. And I like, you know, I like seeing Harley and Ivy have a back and forth and like quipping around and, and doing things. But I think that's some, at least as I recall, I, I just remembered enjoying Love on the Lamb more for just kind of what it does with that. Because uh, it is kind of like, all right, we're going to have a MacGuffin, but it's not even like, you know, Maltese Falcon level of like significance. It's really just a, a vehicle to have a little lover spat here without actually having a lover spat. Anybody have anything else to add on this one? I don't think I have anything good to say about this. <laughs> I didn't like it. Yeah. Like even uh, the the story's bad, Deanie's bad, the coloring's bad in spots. It's just they bleh. call they call what it, issue two? They call it jungle fever, which yep. is like, come on, guys, yeah, yeah. And, why, and, why yeah. are we doing that? And, and bosom buddies for number one. That's, yeah. that's not again. I feel like the third issue, which is hooray for Harleywood, a is at least the, by far the least problematic title. And it just, that strikes me as this was the story that Dini had written initially. And it's like, let's add a couple of things so we can release it as a mini series. Yeah. And yeah, we got the rest of this. It's, I guess it's in that phase of like, we know that Harley and Ivy are fun together, but we're not really going to take them seriously. And we don't know what to do with them, except find like a softer iteration of Harley's relationship with the Joker. That's like, we're we're not going to have Ivy be outwardly abusive, like physically to Harley, but we kind of can't help but have this pat, like they don't know what to do except have a sort of straight man just be irritated at her for comic effect. And so you don't really get any of the, the fun flavors of the characters. I think that's a good note to move on from Will. Uh, that means it's time to put Batman, Harley, and Ivy on the big board. All right. So, Will, it sounds to me like you want to put this below Beware of Poison Ivy. Uh, you know what? Not necessarily, because at least it has substance. None of it good. <laughs> um, 
so like so after beware of poison ivy we start to get into things that like i actively loathe right gotham by gaslight you get farther than that you know the blue the gray the bat just like the really really bad stuff at the bottom of the list and i don't think it quite lowers itself to that like obviously we pointed out the problematic moments i can't imagine why this comic needed to exist it doesn't seem to add anything it's just there uh mostly benign so i think it has to go under dark knight a true batman story again by dini he was trying to say something there a lot of it was bad but it had some kind of substance so you know i'm looking in this 79 to you know 96 i i think this is better than beware poison ivy okay here's something that's 84 shaman legends of the dark knight one to five another book that has something to say but does it in an uncomfortably late 80s way but is i think generally that's got a lot of liberal white guy guilt and a lot of I'm trying to write characters and I'm not really pulling it off. But I think it has more to say than this story does. And I would be sad, but I'm not absolutely opposed. I would be sad if we put it above Holy Terror because that book is so stupid ambitious. And this, to me, has no ambition. That is true. I really feel like we need to revisit Holy Terror when we're when we're looking at some of these, you know, some of these things that we ranked early on or like we we should have put that higher because it is just wow. You took a big old swing on that one. I love a good big old swing. The, the monkey astronaut of Batman stories. Holy Terror. I like that analogy. It didn't come back alive, but we value sacrifice. Well, I think then we... The Leica of yeah. the stories, <laughs> if you will. Okay, then if we don't put it above Holy Terror, I think it is still probably better than Your Face is Your Fortune, that Catwoman story we were talking about earlier. So I think that makes this our new 93. Works for me. All right. And our final story of the night, Everyone Loves Ivy. From Batman Volume 3, numbers 41 to 43. The writer is Tom King, with pencils by Mikkel Janine, as well as inks by Janine. Colors by June Chung. Letters by Clayton Cowles, and edited by Jamie S. Rich and Brittany Halter. Cover dates April to May of 2018. One day, Batman wakes up, and Poison Ivy rules the world. Everyone is Ivy, and everyone loves Ivy. And it's up to Batman and Catwoman to stop her but should they this is the return of tom king who we haven't talked about since fairly early in the podcast i mean he has two stories in our top 10 and this is the first time we're doing a story where he's working with Mikkel janine who is an artist he worked with quite a bit on his run on batman we uh, are all out of the good tom king I'm sorry. <laughs> We've still got a couple. We still have rooftops, and there's one or two more that are <laughs> one where uh, Bruce and Selena and Lois and Clark go on a double date. Okay, okay, That's the date one night. That I've read that one, and I really enjoyed it, and I recognize this as you know from 
similar continuity. And, and I, so I came in and I had big expectations and they, you know, they just like limboed underneath them. Part of that (laughs) is the weight of the war of jokes and riddles. Yeah, tell me about that because I was I wasn't here for that. <laughs> the war it, of, you didn't miss much. Yeah, the War of Jokes and Riddles was a Tom King story from earlier in the run. Right after Bruce proposes to Selena, he has to tell her this dark secret that he has, and it has to do with an event earlier in his career, the sort of unknown retconned period where. The Joker and the Riddler go to war and it's a civil war amongst the Gotham underworld and most villains choose a side. And Mm -hmm. in the end, Bruce's dark secret is that he got to a point where he pretty much let the Riddler take a shot at the Joker and nearly kill him. And the Joker didn't die. And in the end, the Joker gets his, his sense of humor back from this moment. Was he all out of jokes? Was that what happened? That that was part of the joke. Yeah, that the Joker couldn't find anything funny anymore. Somebody threw off the Joker's groove? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, But it became this thing where King introduces this in issue 25 of the run. And it becomes this sort of central thing for the rest of the run. This is a, yeah, it might be a big deal for Batman. But this was probably a decade ago in comic book time. Why is it suddenly important to everybody a decade later? There's no reason why this is suddenly freaking Ivy out now, other yeah. than Tom King came up with this concept and now wanted to use it. Yeah, it really, really feels to me like something that was taken from con- like an seemingly insignificant arc that as a writer, you have best laid plans like you want to take something that people don't take seriously and then elevate it somehow and it's you know without stepping on someone else's toes maybe but then like it just doesn't make sense for who the characters are at this point like kind of the art is gorgeous I think that there are some really interesting themes to play around with and and to me some of it plays out a little bit more like something that would be like a a mythic telling of a story but it doesn't make sense for like a a small arc and it really just like you're telling me that she pulls that like she's just like borg queening everybody in the world and you're just gonna let her like go with like a 20 minute therapy session it doesn't and and it doesn't make sense to me that she's so like traumatized over killing five dudes which she turns out she didn't even do and it it just kind of like what's this really about pamela like it, let's let's get into some other like family history maybe like did you did you have a sheltered childhood do you have a need for control that you know comes from somewhere else it, it, you know are we pulling from jason woodrow continuity as well like there are so many other things that I think he could have done that would have made it believable as like why Ivy would pull something like this, why she would do it. And it's like, I'm going to take control over everybody. I'm going to rule the world so that I can make sure that nobody ever gets hurt again. But it's, it's not really, doesn't make sense to me. I was stunned by the sheer amount of cursed content in these three issues. (laughs) 
We've got ads. We've got ads for Bendis. We've got ads for the new age of heroes. The story ties into war of jokes and riddles, ties into heroes in crisis, and ties into the wedding that doesn't happen. Like isn't Trump in it too? Yes. uh, Yeah. Yeah. This these three issues are fucking snake bit as hell. I mean, damn. As you said, this is setting Ivy up to move her over into Heroes in Crisis, which, oh boy. Everybody loved that book. (laughs) (laughs) I am a Wally West fan. Do not talk to me about Heroes in Crisis. (laughs) Don't. It's taken how many? It took us, what, five years to four years to get Wally back into a place where he wasn't a complete disaster? And the thing with using the War of Jokes and Riddles as the foundation of this is that it's playing into King's personal main plot point. He loves war and PTSD stories. Loves is probably not the right turn of phrase on that one, but it's one of the central themes in his work. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a guy, he was CIA in uh, Iraq during the, yeah. the Iraq war. So it's very, that uh, this is something that personally affects him and he, puts it through in a lot of his work yeah but there's i feel like for ivy isn't if you're if you want to really play around with war and trauma there's a much more obvious way to do it and we've seen thing it work where like ivy takes on a protective role but you know there are so many people who like i i would i could totally see her having like a haven for domestic abuse survivors Like she's already got one living with her, you know, like it also, it doesn't make sense that she overrules Harley's autonomy like that. Her controlling everybody else does not feel like a feasible reaction from her or like a long-term thing. Uh, It doesn't seem very well thought out. uh, And, and it just feels like you're telling me that the most guillotine happy villain like the most ready to eat the rich is sad about like five finance bros like i don't know man just doesn't track for me i feel like if it if anything it would be like something much if you're if you want to make an argument that something triggered her it should go to something that makes more sense that is like a deeper held trauma, like a deeper core thing. I just don't think that she would be that shaken over, over that. It doesn't make sense for her character. I do think that her wanting to be like, literally be Mother Earth makes sense. And that there are obvious like smothering tendencies that you can play into with that, even just visually with like creeping vines and obviously, but it doesn't, see, it seems like a really superficial understanding of her motivations and her long-term goals in general for like protecting the planet like she's a lot more like if she were to actually enact all of her desires and actually create this haven for plant life and for people and beings like there would be a, a whole lot of bloodshed because she would be feeding all of Wall Street and and Congress and Silicon Valley to Audrey Three. And the Joker. There is no way the Joker makes it out of this alive. Right. 
there's no way any number of people make it out of this alive. And while there has to be a degree of suspension of disbelief when you're dealing with superhero universe stories that are world shaking, that only exists within one book here. King is actively bringing in Superman. He's bringing in the flashes. When you're making this about the world, you needed to have some reason why Alec Holland was not getting involved because Ivy is using the green to subvert the world. Where the fuck is Swamp Thing? Yo, right? Like Alec would really just like roll in and be like, Ivy, come on. We've talked about this, you know, just like (laughs) Swamp, like Alec comes in and, you know, Abby's like trailing in and, you know, with, with like some weird cursed scones, you know, just like a whole bunch of like, you know, microdosing and, and just like, all right, like, let's, let's have it out. Let's have just like a little shag carpet of moss and and let's figure this out because this is unsustainable, Pam. Like what's going on? And where's Animal Man? This is violating the red. She's Mm -hmm. subverting the will of the entire animal kingdom. Even if Buddy Baker, noted vegetarian, is completely taken by whatever Ivy's doing, he's got a 10-year-old daughter who's attached to the red. And don't tell me 10-year-olds don't want to, wouldn't, avoid vegetables if they couldn't if they could if you're bringing in all of these other concepts and you're actually addressing them you you have to uh, deal with the wider Mm -hmm. world and it seems like king is really just touching on what's convenient for him in this yeah also i know so many people who have like they can they go they're like camels, but with vegetables, like they, I, there are people like, I have never, ever seen them have so much as like a tiny piece of like arugula. There are, you know, if they're getting their vegetables, it's through some other form. So like, I I really don't think that she went into like all of the supplements and, and pharmaceuticals. Like there are people who are not seeing fresh vegetables. It's weird. And then there's like the comment where they're like, um it's a lot of people eating green like this is a problem i think with a lot of poison ivy where people can't make up their mind is she a vegetarian is she vegan does she want people eating animal like plant products does she what because people have a really uh, kind of facile uh understanding of ecology as it relates to food production and all of that so you know you get like a lot of the as many like anti-vegan, anti-vegetarian type of like people as you get vegans who also don't realize that so-called vegan leather is just plastic and that's going to get thrown out. And, you know, a lot of the time, other products that, that do have like fur or leather last a lot longer when they're made properly. And overall, the, the problem maybe maybe is capitalism and and not somebody like having a burger in and of itself, but like, it's just a really inconsistent understanding of her politics and and her beliefs. And like, it kind of makes her look dumb. (laughs) And let's also not even get to the point of, okay, Batman suffers massive head trauma. So Harley, who is a psychologist, she's a PhD, but she's not an MD. Harley's a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. But she's got, she's got four PhDs. That equals mm-hmm. one MD. 
Right. That's, that's how the conversion works. You know, she did, you know, her clinic hours or something like she's. In all fairness, I suppose, as I heard at a panel recently when Dan and I were at Fan Expo Philly with Stephanie Phillips, the current writer on Harley Quinn, whether Harley was a psychiatrist or a psychologist has been sort of a a swinging question. It was only until the current run where Stephanie feels like she is a psychologist because the first story of the arc pitted her against Hugo Strange, who is a psychiatrist. It was set up specifically there to be a counterpoint. But still, even if you're a, a a psychiatric MD, Superman punches you in the head. You need a freaking neurosurgeon. You need yeah. someone with very specialized training to deal with that level of head trauma. Bruce's little Batman gambit of, well, she'll clearly get Harley, does not make sense. You'd get Dr. Midnight, the superhero doctor, to do that because he's the guy who would, you know, that's what he does. Yeah. Or Dr. Oz. <laughs> Dude. Hey, 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 hey. He is a real neurosurgeon. That's the only good thing I'm going to say about it. Yeah, I guess when you think about it, it's not only do we not often have a clear understanding of what degree goes where and does what, but sometimes you can't really bank on those professionals with the degree to actually do what they're supposed to. So at that point, I guess uh, the lesson here is never seek any type of specialist in Gotham. If you're a specialist in Gotham, there's a more than 50% chance you're a supervillain. Yeah, that's true. When you specialize that far, you're going to just get a niche and you're going to turn that niche into an obsession. You're going to turn that obsession into some sort of psychotic break. Yeah. And if you don't, then one of the villains is going to get to you and use you and you don't want to be like, that or like a random Arkham red shirt. So obviously it, it's just, it makes way, way more sense to at that point become a super villain, which is how we get Dr. Oz. Uh, okay. I want to correct the record because uh, I'm a moron. Heart surgeon. Right. Like um, certain would-be presidential candidates. So this is not only the queerest episode of Bat Chat, it is also the most political. <laughs> Check out multiple that, boxes. Love I it. have that effect on podcasts. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, hey, you're not hearing any complaints out of either of us. And, and for those of you out there in listener land, I sorry, not sorry. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, we'll, we'll go back to our usual brand of nonsense shortly. Look, look, if you guys don't want to make America great again, that's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think we've discerned that these these three uh, arcs have certainly not made Gotham great again. Um, oh, snap. The, this is, and we haven't seen a ton of this in the other two King stories that we've done because Selena isn't in Cold Days. And the stuff in some of these days is much subtler. This is the Tom King by way of Aaron Sorkin or Joss Whedon witty banter, Batman and Catwoman. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, they're, they're walking through a world populated by poison ivy zombies and they're quipping at each other about their obsessions 
that's not Bruce. Maybe it's Selena, but even I don't know if that's necessarily Selena either. But King loved writing them as too witty by half. Bat cat. Bat yeah. cat. Bat cat. Cat bat. That's kind of, I mean, that very much tracks for the Whedon screwball comedy type of dialogue. That idea, uh, the very uh, His Girl Friday type of dynamic for those two, for Bad Cat. I, I can understand that. And it's not even what like bothers me the most, but I think that it's very difficult to do that and still maintain substance. If you know, like you have to, if you're going to do that, and especially if you're going to do like uh, just jarring things, like I think someone who does that pretty well on average is Shane Black sometimes problematically, but like, you know, like kiss, kiss, bang, bang. And especially Iron Man three is something where like, you know, part of the, the, you see very clearly where the banter and the humor is a defense mechanism. And so like, that doesn't really happen here. I was, I was really shocked that they just let her like walk away and just like, like, you know what, who among us has not taken control over the entire fucking planet? Um, it's Pam's like horrible, no good, bad day, and it's fine. Just we'll we'll give you a pass this time, so long as you're not late to the wedding. It's like what's what's going on here? I'm not like I think that all the prison system in general. I I do not believe in it. I think it should not be there. I think that that's the, the issue with Gotham and the whole thing for me with Batman is like, this is a, a system that cannot be fixed and everything else is just like, there are not enough like fingers to plug all of these leaks. And that's the problem. But like, so I'm not advocating by any stretch that Ivy be locked away or, or sent to Arkham again. But I, it's also just kind of like, girl, girl, let's talk about this because if you have a bad mood in a couple of days, we need to make sure that we're not doing this again, you know? I would say you should read Where She Goes Next in Heroes in Crisis to see what they do, but no one should read Heroes in Crisis. <laughs> we're going to ask you me. someday, and I'm not looking forward to that day. Are you, Will? Mm, that, that's going to have to be a Jason Todd book. Yeah, I swear to God. going to have to request that one. Uh, but, you know, I think I, I figured out in my, in my brain like tom king's deal and i i, I kind of hate that we brought up date night because date night is like the one exception the method in which he uses to tell his stories are never fun they're never fun to read like cold days and you know the annual that we love they're not fun stories they're serious stories told in this melodramatic plotting time skipping flashbacky kind of way like there's no straight line narrative so it's not like a just a fun page turner that you can just sit down and enjoy and that's one of the reasons i particularly hated this read like the the narration is confusing you get to like one panel where it's all explained oh she's controlling people through the food which you know i would just say just do the happening have it be spores that's much easier <laughs> um, but it's just Exactly. He's a very irritating guy when it comes to just <laughs> writing a straightforward comic. And sometimes you can give him a pass on that when the substance is good, like his good books. 
but when it's like mediocre to just his fascinations and peccadillos, like it's goddamn near unreadable. And this is really saved by some fantastic art. Oh my God. Yeah. Janine is a massive talent and Ivy is stunning. Ivy is a goddess and Mm -hmm. that incredibly disconcerting splash of Bruce's broken face after Superman punches him in the head that there's nightmares there mm-hmm. it's it's that two page spread of of everyone loving Ivy mm-hmm. that was fabulous everything's so detailed her freckles oh my god absolutely no it's it's a gorgeous book I want Ginny to do a Superman title because his Superman is just he's regal it has to be the right superman book but i would love to see him do more with superman i'd be curious to see him do more with the flashes because there's a lot he does motion so well although it will bother me that okay i could i can absolutely go with selena being able to take out one flash but she had three speedsters on her at the same time yeah no one batman couldn't do that that's all batman's whole thing he couldn't prepare for everything you cannot take out three guys who are moving at the speed of at well beyond the speed of sound at the same time yeah it also it's really completely stretches any credulity that that ivy could hack the supply chain with arugula or fucking kale or whatever because her extremely inefficient use of flashes to you know like (laughs) as as shields it's just really like i don't know what the long-term plans here were or maybe they just don't teach the supply chain like economics in the cia uh or or king was asleep in that class i don't know as someone whose wife is currently working in uh food procurement believe me nothing is that easy Nothing is that easy when things are working normally, let alone when right. there's a massive disruption like a pandemic or, oh, I don't know, a supervillain taking over the entire world. Yeah, it's just like too many logistics, like unless she also had, you know, Brainiac there, like not even like it's just so many logistics. It's so many other variables. It's like, you know, I don't I don't think she took control of the world nearly long enough to have an effect on global warming to the point where she wouldn't have to worry about like. Again, a supply chain issue. Uh, I'm just freaking out over here about the logistics. Like I just go into uh, office management mode and I'm just like, I, like you're telling me I couldn't, like I can't even order for like a, like Quiznos for the office, but you're telling me that she got everybody to eat kale, you know, (laughs) like fuck (laughs) out of here, man. (laughs) There are way too many people with way too many dietary sensitivities that it's not Mm -hmm. just this one guy in Gotham yeah it's like you know the long-term thing would be obviously like there would have to be other people who were immune or or maybe just like like in in the middle of a sex sabbatical where all they were you know drinking or eating was electrolytes uh you know and they missed the little special ivy juice like how did it even like I, I'm still stuck on that because it's like, did she like sprinkle it on stuff and like wait for people to consume it? It doesn't fucking matter. Cause you know what it is. It's like, we're past the logistics and just like in a Roland Emmerich film or on a better day, James Cameron, it's just like, 
everything is, is an attempt at a mythological mechanism. Cause like, it's a, a psychological story where it's just like, oh, sure. If you are not dealing with your trauma there, one of the trauma responses you can have is to try to micromanage everybody else and then try to micromanage the emotions of the people around you um, because you are afraid of repeating past cycles or uh, doing harm and you're ashamed uh, and and you have to recuperate your own self-worth somehow. So there are things that you could say and there are ways that you could have a very mythic story being told that exemplifies like dealing with those traumas in some gnarly ways, but that's not what's happening here. And, you know, Swamp Thing did it better. <laughs> I, I, I think we, we've hit all the, the notes on this. That means it's time to let Batman, everyone loves Ivy on the big board. So where are we in relation to the other two stories? I think we're still better because it's, while logistically there's a lot of nonsense, this is nowhere near as problematic as either of the other two stories. Yeah, and there is a story. And, there, you know. <laughs> yeah. and it's gorgeous. It's The art is stunning. Yeah. I don't absolutely. think in now 114 stories, I don't know that we've ever quite had this particular problem of <laughs> the art being so relatively spectacular and the story being so mundane to not good. Gotham by Gaslight? Or is that still early enough Mignola that it's not quite as... That's that's close, right? But then Gotham by Gaslight, just it was an extra bad story attached to art that wasn't that good. It as was good, good as Mignola will get. Exactly. But yeah, I, I think this is better than the other two, but this is still not cracking the top 50. No. I will say you're not getting this above blades, Will. <laughs> you will get one Good. more issue, Good. one more episode where you can put blades at 69, okay? Nice. <laughs> Finally, I got one more reason to live for next week. <laughs> All right. So now here's, a, here's one. Well, here's a question. 71, Arkham Asylum Living Hell. That has some problematic Ivy content or problematic Ivy adjacent content but also has good art. And again, but that is three and a half to four good issues out of six. It's just the two that are not good are really pretty lame. Will is thinking very hard, folks. And the, again, this is- it's such an intent expression. Just it, it's, torment. A, it's, it's It is, it's tough. If this had been sort of- on the bad side of DC fill-in art, like I would be like, oh, hey, this is like, this is in the 90s or even below. But I mean, it's a, it's a gorgeous book. Now we have an, somewhat of an inverse with number 72, Riddler in the Dark, which is the, a really fun Charles Soule Riddler script with that Dennis Calero art that is muddy, that the art takes that story down a bunch of notches. So are we in that range? Yeah, that that seems right. 70 to 80, you've got stories that are just kind of, either they're not good, the execution has some kind of problems, you know, the, a couple of issues are off, or they just 
just didn't really amount to much like overdrive is there at 74 and like there's nothing wrong with that story but it's just like kid batman you know fast and furious without really batman um so yeah i think we could do somewhere in the in the 70s um so uh, you you bring up overdrive i think i think that might be its spot i i would read batman and son again before i would read this again especially for some of the fun stuff that Morrison does in that second issue with the pop art things. There's a couple of genuinely emotional moments in there. There's a lot of fun Bruce and Alfred in the first issue. So I think Batman and son is definitely above this. So then there's overdrive. I think this is probably better than overdrive because it's, it's better art. So I think this might be our new number 74. Works for me. All right. Yeah, I think all of these have the seeds of a good story, but somehow it's really difficult for anyone writing uh, Poison Ivy to have a, a green thumb about it, I guess. If that's a, if I'm going to stretch that metaphor. <laughs> we, we, we love a good stretch metaphor around here. You're fitting oh, yeah. in just fine, V. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's on theme. I have a fern behind me. I got my little, like, bite me Venus flytrap shirt. Like, I'm in the zone. But, yeah, I, I feel like it's it's one of those things where it's like i i love poison ivy like i want to tell people all about poison ivy and then a lot of the time it's like here's how this person fucked her up like here's how this person did it wrong here's where this one is like you know it's it's getting there but you know here's this picture so it's just like you know every time i talk about her it, it really comes down to a very long elevator pitch as to why nobody should touch her but me <laughs> I, I think that says to me that you're going to have to come on one of our Patreon bonus episodes where we can talk about that kind of thing. And you're going to have to give us your Ivy pitch because I would love to hear that. I would be honored. Thank you. Uh, that is doing it for the evening. Veronica, thank you for being on the show. Uh, where can people find It was you? a hoot. Yes. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, I had so much fun. Um, people can find me just about on every platform at Joan of Archetype. I don't know if you guys have show notes or if you want me to spell it out, but it, you know, it's just like, just like Joan of Arc, except instead of just that at the end, it's archetype, like union, uh, I, you know, cause I'm a slut for mythology and uh, also I, a myth scholar. I, I've got your handle. I can put it in the show notes. Don't worry. It's not like, <laughs> you know, we don't follow each other. Yeah. That's it for this week. Next week, Joshua Wheel is back to talk about the mob in Gotham with the War Games crossover and two other stories. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, the conduit of outdated joke names. That's a mouthful, June. Joshua Wheel, Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Kyle Still, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, 
You can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. Da-da-da. Da-da.